let's open up to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's go before the Lord this morning and pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you, and thank you, Lord, that you have given us something tangible in the scriptures that we can all relate to, Lord, that we understand what it means to run, and we know it's hard to run any sort of distance, God, and so we ask that you would give us, that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, enable us to do what it is that you have called us to do and to run our race today to win. Lord, we desire to get that prize in heaven, Lord. We want to see you face to face. We want to receive those crowns that are waiting for us, God, that we can throw them down at your feet. So speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 12 says, verse 1, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That is the key right there. The author and finisher of our faith, who is who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. First of all, we must remind ourselves that the spiritual state of these Hebrew Christians was one, we recall, of heavy persecution. They were losing their focus because their trials that they were facing had caused them to look back. How many times in Hebrew so far, and we're almost done, is the writer continuing them to look ahead, to look up? And that's what we're going to discuss today. We can look in three places, and the worst place to look is back. And it's always for us a temptation to look back. And they were tempted to look back. They were discouraged, as we'll learn today. And that is always a temptation when we become discouraged. They were losing their focus because their trials that they were facing had caused them to look back to look back to what it used to be like or, or uh, how the enemy comes in and tries to tr- trip us up to get us disqualified in the race by, by tempting us to think that it was better. What we left behind was better. And we know, all of us know, and we've told you before, that if we look back, it's just a matter of time before we what? go back, right? If we're looking back, it's just a matter of time before we go back. Therefore, the writer is using this familiar illustration with us today. He's reminding the readers and us that we are in a race and that we need to do certain things to finish well. So he says three things he tells them. You need to look you need to lay aside and you need to learn. So those are the three things that we're going to discuss this morning. It's kind of like stop, drop, and roll. You really need to pay attention to these things. So what are we to look for? Verse 1 tells us we are to be looking at all of the examples in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. All of those great, the great cloud of witnesses, those Wonderful examples of the people that have gone on before us, that have lived lives of faith. Those men and women in the hall of faith, the ones that were not perfect, but we know were perfected, right? We are to look to the lives of of people um, that we come across, 
that are in our own lives, that have gone before us, and that have remained faithful to Jesus, those that have run hard and finished well. We each have examples of people in our own lives that we look to, that we, that we can see, that are tangible lives, that we can um, see as testimonies of God's faithfulness. They started strong and they ended stronger. We think of, of course, Pastor Chuck is, is a great example. He started strong and it, he ended just as strong, if not stronger, than he started. Those sorts of people in our own lives that we can look to as great testimonies of God's faithfulness. We want that same testimony. Amen? So how do we accomplish this great testimony? The remainder of verse 1 tells us, without, um, we need to, after we are looking for those examples, then he says that we, our second point is we need to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Two things that can slow us down in our race, weights and sin, right? In ancient times, and even really to the present time, when runners are training for a race, they'll often use weights as part of their regiment. They will train with weights. They'll put weights, a weight belt around them, anything to make it harder for them as they're training. And then when they go to the blocks to start their race, they seem to be lighter. Or we know with baseball, what do the, the baseball players swing on their bat before they go up to hit? A weight. Their bat is weighted so that when we go up there, they have a better swing. It's a little easier. So, however, when it comes time to actually run the race, everything, or swing the bat, everything, the weight is what? Laid aside. And that's what we see here. Um, anything that could potentially slow us down should be laid aside. To lay aside means to put aside, to rid oneself of. The first thing that is to be laid aside are weights. And the word weight is actually the word encumbrance. It literally refers to a bulk or a mass. It's used to describe anything that would hinder or prevent somebody from doing something. For the Christian, it's anything and everything that hinders our spiritual progress. So what's considered to be a weight for the Christian, it's different really for each of us. What is a weight for me may not be a weight for you and vice versa. A weight doesn't have to be, though, something bad. We have to understand a weight could actually be something good, but something that keeps us from the best, something that slows us down, something that hinders our stride maybe. Maybe it's a distraction. It's something that diverts our attention. It zaps our strength. It diminishes our enthusiasm for the goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. It could be a liberty that I have as a Christian that the scripture doesn't necessarily condemn, but it gets in the way of God's call upon my life. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, right? Paul didn't ask, is this sin or is this not sin? He said, in essence, if it holds me back, 
if it is not helpful, if it does not edify me, if it does not build me up, if it impedes my progress in my ability to run, then it's gone. I will do away with it. Pluck it out. Cut it off. You know what Paul says. Get rid of it. This is a searching question for sure but one that we need to really ask the Lord of and to search our heart. Is there anything that is weighing me down today? If so, I need to get rid of it. I need to place it at the feet of Jesus. I need to put it it on the altar. Whatever I need to do, I need to lay it aside and get rid of it. Ladies, the race is far too important to be weighed down. We must be weight-free as we run, and that's how God really intended for us to run. These weights can come in different packaging. They can be people, cares, fears, desires, anxieties, discouragements, pride, selfishness, and so on. Jesus said in Mark 4.19, And the cares of this world... The deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things, entering in, choke the word, and become unfruitful. We live in an age of unlimited distraction, right? I mean, it's just constant distraction. A generation that is so completely uh, inundated with technology that we often find it difficult to truly connect in conversation of any depth with people Uh, with an eye-to-eye, one-on-one conversation. We have such a a short attention span, and it's not just the millennials. We have gotten a short attention span as well. I know this because I do certain uh, trials on Instagram just to see how long I can hold someone's attention, and it's very interesting. You know, we're doing these Titus 2 series And so we have done, um, you know, just little small segments. And it used to be that we used to do an interview, and and it used to be 20 minutes long. And now we have to cut it half the time. 11 minutes is too long. People won't even sit and listen to content for 11 minutes. And then we did another test. We put a little teaser on Instagram that's, you know, uh, less than 60 seconds. I think it's 45 seconds. And we had like 250 views of that teaser, but no Nobody went to the interview. So it's very interesting as we're, we're learning that it's not just the millennials that have the short attention span, it's all of us as well. That our attention span is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So now, really, we've succumbed to this, you know, that it's just, okay, I will give you 45 seconds of my time and that is it. <laughs> So make it worth it, right? So we're constantly trying to, uh, you know, figure out how people are thinking in this day and age and really grab their attention and hook them and then, and that's it. You know, you have basically 45 seconds to make a difference in some people's lives in this day and age. And, um, and you know, so we're trying to, to make it work you know, with what we've got. But we are a generation, not just the millennials, but all of us who have really succumbed to this attention span of a junior hire, really. You know, it's just like this and maybe less. But it used to be that you'd have to go to the internet to escape real life. And now we have to uh, go to real life to escape the internet, right? I mean, it's just so, so flip-flop, so backwards. It's estimated that people check their smartphones 81,500 times a year 
or every 4.3 minutes. Every 4.3 minutes, you're checking your cell phone. Did I get a text? Did anybody like this? You know, is there anything going on? Do I need to respond to this email? Whatever it is. Each of us as runners in this Christian race need to go before the Lord and we need to ask him to reveal if there is any distractions, any weights, anything that could possibly be hindering our stride. And if so, we need to then be obedient to lay that thing down, whatever it is that hinders you. Do you, don't answer me, but do you check your phone before you go to the word of God? I mean, I think probably all of us would raise our hand. It is, is it not a distraction that we go there first? Uh, Whether it's to check the weather or anything else, what if we made that something that we laid aside? Lord, help me first and foremost in the morning to reach for you, to reach for your word, to at least connect with God first in prayer before we connect with anybody else, our phone or anything else. Maybe, um, you know, let that sit and resonate for a minute. (laughs) It doesn't take very long. Yes, we would say, right? How important it is. We want to be women who first connect with the Lord. Amen. Before we connect with anybody else, how about we disconnect? with the world for a while, that we may reconnect with our Heavenly Father. So we're looking at others who have been a good witness to us. We are also um, running this unhindered race as we lay aside those things. And next we're to learn how to run. So we look, lay aside, and here we are to learn. Verse 1, still in verse (laughs) 1. I will say it was... um, difficult to get uh, past these first few verses because they're so meaty. There's so much in them. But still in verse one, we are now to learn how to run. And verse one says, with endurance, we are to run the race that is set before us. Endurance, ladies, is patience. It means to remain under or steadfast. It portrays a picture of unflinching, bearing up, underneath a heavy load. It describes the quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. In a physical race, there comes a point in the race where it may be extremely difficult to continue. The muscles begin to ache, the lungs begin to burn, your heart is pounding, and you want to what? Quit. We want to quit. If we are to build endurance, though, we must push through every time we want to quit. Amen? When we want to quit, that's when we know we have to push through and get our second wind. We have to look beyond what is physically capable, and we need to look to the Lord, which he supplies for us, which is beyond what we are physically capable of. I've never been a runner. I mean, I'm thankful that I still can run. <laughs> I wondered when I was pregnant, will I ever run again? But um, I, I never was a runner. I did actually run track in elementary school competitively for a short time, but I ran sprints. I never ran long distance. I even took a class, though, in college because I wanted to learn how to run. I really did. So we had to run 10 miles a day. 
I'm like thinking like, who can do that, right? But you know, I was crazy back then. So I thought, well, I'm going to take this class and I'm going to challenge my body physically. My, my major was nutrition. So I'm like, I can do this. I can challenge myself. And it nearly killed me. And it did confirm one thing to me. I am not a long distance runner. But uh, I did realize that... Um, I would need to grow in my endurance. And I learned a lot by taking that class because I learned that I was capable of much more than I thought, that my body actually could press through what my mind thought, that my muscles would keep going even though I thought that they would just stop. And that, ladies, carries over into our Christian life as well. We are capable with the Lord's power. We are capable of much more than we give ourselves credit for, than we think that we can do. Well, I learned in college that, as I said, I was capable of more than I thought, and that if I depended upon the Lord instead of depended upon myself, I could do much more. When I put on worship music, I could run 10 miles because my mind was stayed upon Christ. But when I tried to do it without that, I could not accomplish it. I realized that I needed the Lord to accomplish this task. What is it in your life that you say, I can't do it? Is there anything that comes to your mind that you say, I, I can't do that? Like I tell you, I had to learn to run 10 miles, and you say what? I can't do that, right? Well, I tell you, I can't do that now. <laughs> but if God called me to that challenge again, I know, even at my age, that I could do that because he would equip me with everything I stand in need of. Now let's carry that into our Christian life. What is it that you say, I can't do that? We know that the Lord says what? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And we know that all means all. All doesn't mean most, and all doesn't mean some, but we know that all means all, with a capital A, L, and L. Because the Christian life is not a sprint, ladies. It is a marathon. We must be in training, constant training. One of the things that I learned from my elementary days of running is that it was easy to start. Really easy. I mean, I could get on the blocks. I can get in position. When I heard the gun go off, I knew when it was to start. But there is a strategy to finishing and finishing strong. It's all about pacing yourself. In college, I was reminded again about this pacing. The longer distance you run, the more important it was to pace yourself. All of us can start well, and we can start our Christian life well. But again, finishing is a completely different story. And when we look at runners that are in the Olympics, let's say, and they start fast, and they have a long distance, let's say it's those ones that run I don't know, miles, <laughs> you know, they're just running and you're, you go and get something to eat and sit back and down and they're still running. I mean, they just run forever. But yet at the end, what happens? Do they ease off when they see the finish line? No. Those three or four that are towards the front, what do they do? They push harder. The closer it gets, they push harder and harder and they want to pass the person that's in front of them. 
because they want to be the one that wins. The point is that it's easy to start fast. We have to pace ourselves, but we want to finish stronger or as strong as we started. So how do we do that? We have to push ourselves. We have to pace ourselves. We have to endure. We have to learn. We have to be patient. Endurance is built in different ways. We may be called to trust the Lord like we never have before. That builds endurance. To step out in faith like we never have before. Well, that builds endurance. Or to endure something difficult in our life while still running our race. That builds endurance. The Lord allows things to happen in our lives that we might build our endurance. It's not just running that builds it. Pushing us to trust him a little more and a little more each time. How do you build endurance when you run? You go a little further each time, right? That's how you build endurance. The same is true with our Christian life. We build endurance by trusting the Lord a little bit more every single time. His goal, to build endurance. The will to stick with it when it's difficult. His desire to build perseverance, the tenacity not to give up when things are hard. He wants to build character to make us more like Jesus and hope, right? Because perseverance builds character and character hope. And hope is what? The expectation of coming good. Coach Jesus isn't concerned about how fast our time is, ladies. He isn't concerned... um, If we're wearing Nikes or Adidas, as long as we're hanging in there and we're not giving up, he wants us to endure, to stick with it, not to give up. His main goal in all of this is to make us more like him. He carries the stopwatch of heaven and he knows the number of our days. He is to be our focus, and we are to stay in the race and not step out of the race and be a spectator on the sidelines. His ultimate goal in our training is to get us to the finish line. What is the finish line? Heaven. He wants to get us across the finish line. And then to say to us, what? Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I mean, once we get there, don't we want to hear those words? Yes, we do. The key to finishing well is found in our next verse, verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Highlight that if it's not already highlighted or underlined in your Bible. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To look to Jesus means to turn our eyes away from other things and to fix them on him. The word also means to turn one's mind to certain things. It's all about our focus. Okay, I'm doing this. I've done this before, but put your hand out in front of you. One of them. Just put your hand in front of you, everyone. Look at your hand. Everyone, not... I'm such a teacher. Everyone's hand out in front of them. Okay, look at your hand. Put the other one beside you. Can you see it? Move your fingers. Can you see it? Yes. Now look at this hand. Can you see the other one? No. You're supposed to say no. (laughs) Okay, the point is 
when we're focused here on Jesus, we can see these things. They're there, but they're not in our focus. But once we lose focus on the Lord and, and our focus gets on whatever that is over there, we lose focus of the Lord. That's, the, that's supposed to be the illustration. So uh, that's the point, ladies. Hey, use it with someone else. Actually, it, it works really well normally. Um, so... <laughs> If you want to finish your race well, undistracted and unhindered, the point is you have to keep your focus on him, straight ahead, not to the side or behind. That's the point. It's said that when a runner is in a long-distance race, that they will set their gaze on something in the distance. They will look at a particular landmark and focus on that thing to get them there. They will also, in their mind, think about something encouraging, something pleasant, and something that will cause them to press forward. The same is true with us. Our landmark is heaven. And that is where our eyes are to be daily, ladies. Like Abraham, we too wait for the city whose builder and maker is God. There's no doubt that Abraham grew tired of living that nomadic lifestyle, picking up his tent and moving his whole family, everything, all the time. But he knew something that we have to grab a hold of, that this earth was not his home. It was just his temporary stopping place. He knew that his home was in heaven, and that's where his focus was. And we, too, are to have our minds set on the things above where Christ is seated. As we run our race, we must remain focused on Jesus. When we have a heavenly mindset, we turn our eyes upon him. We're looking to him. We gain endurance um, that we will need to run and finish well. We now move on to our next point, which is we look to Jesus and then we are to consider Jesus. So Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Consider means to think to reckon, to count up or reason with thoroughness and completeness, and to reason with careful deliberation. It's used in what's called the aorist imperative tense, which is a command calling for the reader to give his or her utmost attention to. The writer is saying, in essence, do this now and do not delay. When I look to Jesus and I consider him and what he's endured and all that he's gone through, it really brings perspective, doesn't it? All we need to do is look to the cross for the right perspective. He endured more than we will ever endure, and we haven't resisted bloodshed. We haven't been crucified on a cross. The point, ladies, is that Jesus ran his race for me. Now I need to run my race for him. If his joy was seeing me in glory, then let the joy of finishing my race be seeing him face to face. Amen? Now that's something to consider, really. Well, I wish we could just um, end right here because that's so good about the race, but we have to continue um, (laughs) to more because 
It's not just about running and winning, ladies. Part of running the race we will see next in our next few verses. Verses 5 and 6. And you have uh, forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. As any godly parent raising children, we know that it is vitally important, part of the process, is discipline. Being corrected by the Lord is never fun. When we hear the word chastening, though, we usually only associate it with punishment, right? Um, And then, um, like, negative correcting rather than um, positive correction. Uh, Chastening was used of the whole training and education of a child. It means to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior, of providing guidance for responsible living. I like that definition, right? We're to be responsible in our living. We are to form good habits. And chastening is a way that the Lord does that. It also relates to cultivation of mind and morals. It includes the training and care of the body, curbing passions, correcting mistakes, and cultivating the soul. The chasing of the Lord is a part of the believer's life. The writer points out two responses, though, that we could have uh, of the chastening of the Lord. One, we could despise it. And two, we could be discouraged by it. To despise means to disregard, to uh, have little value in that. And then to be discouraged means to become so tired and weary as to give out and even to faint from exhaustion. That's the definition of discouragement. I mean, which of us hasn't really felt like that at one point? The disciples did this in Mark 4, so we shouldn't feel too bad when it happens to us. When they were on the Sea of Galilee, you remember, as the water was filling their boat, they cried out, Lord, do you not care? Lord, do you not care? What's going on? I mean, has anybody ever, have we ever uttered that? Do you not see? Lord, do you not see what I'm going through? Do you not know what's happening? Do you think he sees? He does. Do you think he cares? He does. Does he let us strive and strain and try to figure things out on our own? He does. Why? Because he's correcting us. He's trying to show us that your way, Michelle, won't work. So I'm going to let you try, just like we do with our kids, right? Oh, really? Okay, you think my way? You think that, that, that I don't know what's better for you? Which of us hasn't said that to our kids? And they're like, no, 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 I want to do it my way. And you let it do them their way, and then they fail. And then we go, I told you so, but the Lord doesn't say that to us. I told you it wouldn't work, right? The Lord is much more gracious with us. But he lets us strive, and he lets us strain, and he lets us think that we can do it when we can't do it to teach us. It's all about our training. We're still running here. This is part of the race right here. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul wrote to encourage the believers who were tired. And he said, 
And let, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season you shall reap, what? If you do not lose heart. That's the key. The Lord wants to bless us, but we have to hang in there till the end. The chastening of the Lord in our lives is twofold. It's first for the development of our faith, and secondly, it's for the evidence of God's love. We're told right here, uh, verses 6 through 10 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure, if, I have that circled, if, because you cannot endure it, but if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father's spirits of spirits and live for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them the chastening of the lord is evidence of his love for us just like an earthly father or mother would do the same thing if the lord did not love us he would not correct us and he would leave us to our own devices The writer likens it to an earthly father. The parent that doesn't correct their child and hold them accountable really doesn't truly love their child. But the parent who desires to see their child grow and develop and mature and hold them accountable um, is really evidence of that parent's great love for their child. Now, not all of us had the best, best earthly father, but we must be reminded that our Lord never corrects us in anger. He's not in heaven saying, I told you so, <laughs> pointing his finger or being angry with us. He doesn't chasten us in the flesh. He chastens us with um, perfect love and always with our best interest in mind. The writer adds that those who are not corrected are illegitimate sons. The person who seems to constantly be getting away with sin, they're not convicted by sin, nor are they repentant, but continue to live in a lifestyle of sin with no fear and no regard to God. We have to wonder if that person is truly born again. I remember when I first got saved, I really hadn't grown in my walk very much. Nobody told me what to do. I didn't know. I didn't know anybody who was saved. But I do recall that something changed. And even though my life didn't change a whole lot immediately, I remember that I, for the first time, was convicted when I sinned. It wasn't as pleasurable as it was before. And that's because when we get saved and we truly ask Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, somebody comes with him. The Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit now is our convictor. And so sin isn't as pleasurable. And we can make it seem like to everyone else that we're having a great time. But at the end of the night, we're the one who goes to sleep and we feel that, um, that guilt and that shame. That's the Holy Spirit now working in our lives. And for you parents who 
Maybe your kids have gone off and they're not walking with the Lord or they're rebellious. You need to trust that although they may seem like everything's great, that at the end of the day, if they truly ever were born again, that the Holy Spirit is doing a job that we cannot do. And that is convicting our kids. Amen? And they will. We learned last time they will come back, as Proverbs tells us. The chasing of the Lord is for the development of our faith, the evidence of God's love. But with chastening, we're told, comes great blessing. Um, 10b and 11 says, But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful as a present, but painful nevertheless afterwards. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to who those who have been Circle this, highlight, underline, if it's not trained by it. We are in training, and chastening is part of our training. It's not just the running and the endurance and the not giving up. This is part of our training as well, the chastening of the Lord. The writer seeks to bring this full circle now and encourage his readers that the chastening of the Lord in our life is for our profit or literally for our good, meaning uh, to bring together and then to confer a benefit. It means to be profitable and advantageous or useful. The idea is to bring together for benefit, profit, or advantage of another, and that another is us. One of the advantages of being chastened and trained by the Lord is that we are becoming partakers of his holiness. Holiness is an attribute and characteristic of our Father in heaven. It's an attribute that um, characterizes his desire to see developed in us. Holiness means to be set apart. A thing is holy if it is set apart for special use. God desires for us to be holy as he is holy, 1 Peter 1.15 says. Paul exhorted the Ephesians to put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and in holiness. The Lord chastens us in order that we may experience the benefit of being holy and set apart for his purposes. We are to be more like him and our old self, and less like our old self, more like him, less like the old woman. We are to be seeing our trials and hardships in this context of being formed into the very image of Jesus Christ. That changes our whole perspective on trials, doesn't it? When we know that there's a plan, when we know that there's a purpose, we can hang in there just a little longer, right? It's like the runner who has their focus on the landmark. And as we said, our landmark is heaven. When we know that there's a purpose in our pain, it helps get through it. That the Lord is using it to correct us, is using it to instruct us, is using it to make us holy, for he is holy. Seeing our trials and hardships in this context changes our complete perspective on things. 
When we can say, the Lord has allowed this to make me more like him, it makes it a little bit easier, just a little bit, but a little bit easier. When we can say, Lord, make me like you, he takes us up on the offer. Have you, any of you ever said that? I know I've said that. Lord, make me like you, Lord. Make me like you, you know, uh, the song. We've all sung that. <laughs> Do we really understand the words that we're singing? Because when we truly are saying, Lord, make me like you, he says, all right, let's do this. And he does. Thus begins the school of hardship, chastening, training, molding us into his very image. Is it necessary? Absolutely. If we want to look like him, we must be conformed into his very image, and that means we cannot escape everything that comes with him. The trials, the testing, the refining, the chase needs all part of the process, ladies, for that's where we build our endurance. That's where we learn what's inside our heart as it's revealed. We gain compassion for others. We learn how to pray, how to live, how to love, how to be holy. Not only are we partakers of his holiness, but we also see the peaceable fruits of righteousness as they are developed in our lives. We will see fruit if you hold on long enough. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterwards it yields, highlight this, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When we are being instructed through chastening or discipline, we don't find it joyful. We often find it painful and hard and difficult. It's like the boy whose father said to him, son, this is going to hurt me as much as it hurts you. And the boy said, yeah, but in a different place. (laughs) It's true, right? God chastens his children by lovingly but sternly correcting them, often using his trials as an instrument to do so. But we must trust the Lord nonetheless and believe that he is working something deep in us that could not be worked any other way. In the end, we will be thankful for these trials that we are now finding ourselves in because they bear fruit, lasting fruit in our lives. In a physical sense, we know that fruit that is produced on a tree is evidence of work that is being done inside of the tree. The spiritual fruit seen in the life of the believer is evidence of the work that God is doing within the believer. Therefore, the chastening of the Lord in our lives is threefold. It's for the development of our faith. It's for the evidence of his love. And it's for the producing of spiritual fruit. Now that the believers were given a clear explanation, the writer gives a word of exhortation in verses 12 through 14, saying, therefore, strengthen your hands. This is like Coach Jesus coming along and saying, all right, let's do this, which are hanging down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace. With all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 
Every athlete needs a good pep talk now and again, right? (laughs) We do. And the writer of Hebrews delivers one. And he says, basically, get your arms up, stand up straight. Let's get your posture back because, you know, when we're down, what happens? We sulk and, and our posture just kind of sinks with us, doesn't it? When we're going through a difficult time. And he said, all right, straighten up, get your shoulders back. Let's stand up. Let's get back in the race. And um, these trials, they've tried to rob you. They've tried to cripple you. They've tried to dislocate you, put things out of place in your life. But um, we're not going to let it do that anymore. Instead, we're going to seek peace with all people. And, um, and don't forget that you're set apart, he says. Why is this important? Hebrews 12, 15 tells us, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. At the beginning of the chapter, the writer told them, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and then consider Jesus, get your eyes on him. And now he reminds them um, even more so, look, but then he adds a word, carefully. Look carefully now, meaning to give attention to, to look at, to contemplate, literally to look upon and thus to observe, to examine the state of affairs as something to look after or to oversee. Why is it so important to have clear focus in the race? The author gives us two reasons. He says, lest we fall short of the grace of God. Falling short of the grace of God means falling back or falling behind. It's like you're following somebody on the freeway and you lose them on the freeway and you fall behind. It's, it's you know, you just, whether you're not paying attention or they're going too fast, it's, this is the same idea. You, you fall short, you, you get sidetracked. It's like that with some Christians. They experience God's grace in their lives and suddenly they've fallen back slowed their pace, no longer charging, missing out on the blessings that they took part in previously with the grace of God. Grace is God's supernatural provision for our every need when we need it. God's grace gives us what we do not desire. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. We do not deserve grace, but we were given grace nonetheless. Yet another danger that we are susceptible to when we don't see the chastening of the Lord in our lives for our good, and um, that is necessary, is bitterness. So we can take advantage of his grace, and then we can also, if we're in this state of going back, we can become bitter. Um, We can become angry disappointed because somebody treated us unfairly. We can even allow it to go into resentment. Here, bitterness is likened to a root that can grow. A root starts under the surface, we know, and then all of a sudden it rains, and what? We have all of these weeds all over the place, right? All it takes is a little water for those guys to start coming up. And all it takes is a little bitterness or a little resentment or a little grudge that we're holding 
for those weeds to start springing up. A root can spring up as a grudge held against somebody or a grudge against God. And although a root isn't seen initially because it starts under the surface, eventually it grows and develops. And we know if it grows in something big enough, it, there's rotten fruit that comes from that tree. Nothing good comes from bitterness. I mean, it can physically take over our lives. Um, it affects everybody around us, much like sin. It spreads. Bitterness in the heart of a person contaminates everything and everyone around them. If you're bitter uh, in your service to the Lord, it can cause you to be critical of other people. I've come across these people before. They're supposed to be serving the Lord, but they're criticizing everybody and they're not doing, they're not serving the Lord with any joy. That's bitterness gets in there. Um, You can become bitter in your marriage by holding grudges and then you're unforgiving of your spouse. We have to ask the Lord, Lord, is there any bitterness in my heart? Because bitterness is dangerous, ladies. We have to ask the Lord to uproot any of those weeds of bitterness. Is there any there, Lord? Am I holding a grudge against anybody that has treated me wrongfully? And if so, Lord, take it. Take it from me, Lord, because I do not want it to grow and then to affect everybody, yourself, your health, spiritual well-being, and then it affects everybody around us. If the Lord brings something to your mind even now, allow him to uproot it and then to plant grace in its place. None of us are deserving of grace and yet we gladly receive it, right? How about we be givers of grace? How about we are the ones that don't hold on to a root of bitterness, but instead we replace it with grace and we be givers of grace. I'm going to summarize the remainder because our time is up here. And I knew it was up, so I was ready to summarize. So in verses um, 15 through 17, the author looks back to the story of Esau as an example of one who failed to... um, extend the grace of God, and then he became bitter. So this is an example in scripture. Although if we keep reading about Esau, he came through it, praise God. I mean, you can be as bitter as Esau ever was, wanting to kill his own brother. And yet in the end, when we read the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob knew because he had left his brother in that state. But when he was reunited with his brother, what happened? His brother had forgotten everything and just embraced him and loved him. And, um, and, and in the end, if we take Esau full circle, praise God that that's how his life ended up. Um, and so, but there are consequences to not dealing with that root of bitterness. You know, it made me think, this is what that story of Esau made me think of. The relationships that we may have with maybe family members, that um, have been estranged and we let something get in there and years and years and years, just like Jacob and Esau, go by and we don't, we as believers aren't the ones to step in and to show grace and we let those years go by and all of those years are wasted. All of that time is wasted that we could have been having a healthy and a good and a vibrant relationship, but because of that little root of bitterness, 
Ness, we've allowed the relationship to be um, estranged. So don't let that be our story. And then in verses 18 through 24, he exhorts them to look up. So look back. Uh, maybe, you know, what we don't want to do. Remember those things. It's always good once in a while to look back at where we came from. That's the only time I want to look back <laughs> and praise the Lord. But look up to the glory of the heavenly city that we are citizens of that city. The one that we will live in forever, made up of multitudes of angels and believers. It's always helpful in our difficult times to think about heaven, isn't it? Look up. If you're in a difficult season, just look up. <laughs> look up. We like to look ahead because we look at the cross and we're reminded of what Jesus has done. But when we look up, everything seems to change. Like, oh yeah, I forgot, Lord. Sorry, I'm on my way to heaven. And, um, and I have all of that to look forward to because I am just stopping by earth, you know. Um, our life on earth, as we said, is, is just the dash between our birth and our death. That's it. It's just our temporary stopping ground. Uh, we were made for another place, and we will get there soon enough. And then finally, in verses 25 through 29, the writer exhorts us to look ahead. God is shaking things up, ladies, and even um, now we can see the things that are happening in our world, and, um, and it's easy for us to, to look ahead, to, to look at what things are coming. But then it can be scary as well, right? We are not to be frightened. We are not to be frightened by what will become of this earth during the tribulation because we won't be there. We can look ahead to the rapture of the church when the Lord will take us out of this earth and take us on to where we do have permanent residency, and that is in heaven. We must be ready um, for he will come, we're told, when we least expect it as a thief in the night. We don't want to let what's happening in this earth frighten us. Who is the author of fear? The devil, Satan. So whenever you're afraid of anything that's happening on the earth right now, just know that that's the devil. He wants to cause us to be paralyzed because when we're paralyzed, what happens? We're ineffective for the kingdom of God. So fear is the opposite of faith. And we're talking about faith, and we want to be women of faith. So we cannot let fear ever grip us. We are to run our race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We can be confident that he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. He started it. He fully intends to complete that work. And we can rest in this today, knowing that he who promises faithful, who also will? Yes, good. He who promises faithful, who also will? Yes, he will do it. He has promised it. He will complete it. And that is with our lives as well. We have begun the race. We're in the race. But he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. Rest in him today, ladies. Endure this present trial, for it just is this. It's just this. It feels like this, but it's just this. Trust him today. We trust that he is doing a good work in and through our lives, that he is building our endurance as we run and we're tired. Those trials that you're faced with today, know that the Lord is using them in your life to build your endurance and to make you more like him. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, we do love you and praise you. And Lord, we're not runners, but we thank you that you make us long distance runners. We know that this Christian life is not a sprint. It is indeed a marathon, God. So build our endurance today. Help us to see all the things that are happening in our life are for a purpose and is to make us more like you and prepare us for our heavenly citizenship. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.